Welcome to the Cricket's Sidecar, where we go a little further into a story of note with the person who wrote it. Hello, and welcome back to Sidecar, the podcast of Manchester Cricket. I am Chris McGinn, the features editor here, and today, Erica Brown and I are joined by Robert Booth, the director and curator of the Manchester Historical Museum. Hi, Bob. Hello, Chris. <laughs> Hello, Erica. Hey there, Bob. Yes, and Erica, of course, is always our editor and owner and all things Manchester Cricket. Today, we're going to be talking to Bob about his latest article uh, for the paper, which he's contributing to regularly, called, and I love your title, Too Rich for Manchester. Too Rich for Manchester. <laughs> let's, just let it, let's just let it stay there for a minute. But this piece, um, which is a two-part piece, is about an 18th century gentleman from Manchester by the name of Samuel Lee. What made you decide to write about Mr. Lee? Well, Samuel Lee came up as a major character in an exhibition that we did this past summer, okay. which is called Manchester 1772. Mm. And we were looking at Manchester in that exhibition as a working class town, mainly a fishing town. And we... Uh, we brought together a lot of actual material, objects, relating to the fishery. And one of the points that the exhibit made is that the town itself was extremely poor all through the 18th century, right. and in fact, well into the 19th century. And the exception to this penury of, <laughs> of this old working class fishing town was this meteoric fellow called Samuel Lee. Hmm. And so at the end of the exhibit, as we stepped through the history, panel by panel by panel, in the way it was presented, the last piece was the life of, briefly the life of Samuel Lee, and especially of his son, Jeremiah, who grew up in Manchester until the age of 21. And it's sort of the exception proves the rule, that this was the family who got out of Manchester because Manchester was just too limited a place for their ambitions. Okay. Hence, too rich for Manchester. Aptly <laughs> 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 titled. Perfect. Okay, good. So as he moved through his life, tell us a little bit more about... What, sure. what it was that, that made the success, like how did, it, how did it happen? Yes. Well, you know, it's always so interesting. We see all of this history through a glass darkly. You, you never get to speak to these people. Mm. You're looking at documents. You're looking right. at sort of the patterns, the highlights of a life that was as real as your life is. You know, it's complex. It's full of ups and downs. And in a case like Samuel Lee, there's no written record, there's no diary, there's no letters. So one can only conclude from sort of scant evidence. But in the case of this guy, we see somebody who is an extraordinarily ambitious person from a very early age. Okay. So yeah, he was born in 1694, and, and what's interesting is you describe, I love the opening where you literally just sort of draw the distinction between Manchester and Marblehead, right? And across Salem Sound, you know, in Manchester, as you just described, Manchester is like a little village with just a few dozen fishermen and farmers. And he's looking across Salem Sound at Marblehead, which is a, 
It's a bustling seaport. It's got a huge fishery. It's got 4,000 people living there. I mean, it is where the action is. <laughs> and yes. he sees it. He yeah. sees it, and he's, his eye's on the prize. Marblehead has been paying him a lot of money. Yeah, uh, yeah. Marblehead is a place that is unfolding as it makes the transition from being a pretty crazy fishing port. Mm. It had a, a long tradition at that point, you know, by the 1730s, when he is working with Marbleheaders and watching this place unfold. Marblehead's been around for 100 years. Mm-hmm. And most of that time, it was a, a really wide-open, crazy fishing town that um, was pretty notorious for its bad behavior. <laughs> and, and in the 1720s... Now, is that according to the written record, Bob? <laughs> we have Were there accounts? diaries about that? Primary source? I've, I've spoken in my dreams <laughs> to these people. Um, yeah. It's, there are. It, it, no, it is. Uh, the court records are, are wonderful. Mm. They've been preserved from the 1630s. And, and so you can see the types of behavior in Marblehead which are really quite different from the Puritan towns surrounding it. So, I love it. So, yeah, we can be pretty sure about what a party place uh, <laughs> it's been Marblehead documented. was. <laughs> yeah, it's been documented. So as Marblehead is unfolding as a brand-new place in the 1720s, some Marbleheaders are coming forward and transitioning this town, this crazy place, into a very well-developed commercial seaport with contacts overseas. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the type of allure that Samuel Lee is looking to plug into. And by the 1730s, it's not too late for someone from some other place to come in and find a spot at the top of the ladder of what's going on. Marblehead is still a wide open place, open to investments, open to new strong personalities. So who was Samuel Lee before all of this happens? He's a kid that grows up in Manchester. His dad is a carpenter. We would think of him as a building contractor today. Mm -hmm. And Samuel is his eldest son, so he is brought into his father's trade. And the first notable thing we see about this Samuel Lee, the, the younger, is that he marries at the age of 18 in 1712. Mm -hmm. This never happens. No one is going to marry somebody who is still at the apprentice level. So as soon as someone becomes a journeyman at the age of 21, most of them already have a girlfriend, and mm -hmm. marriage happens. But mm -hmm. men never marry that young. So he is an extraordinary outlier. He has something going on that What other are your thoughts don't. on why? I'm, I'm, do you have any? I mean, or, or is it just one of those things where we don't know why, but it happened and it's clearly an indication that he was, I don't know, fill in the blank, very, very ambitious, or I his parents meteoric. really, really <laughs> wanted to get rid of him. Or, yeah. I'm just joking, I'm joking. But, you know, what, what yeah. are your thoughts on that? Well, I think he developed early as a man. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, by the time he was 16 or 17, he probably was a big guy. And he had figured things out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and probably that was uh, assisted by his father, um, who clearly was an ambitious man as well. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But I, I think he, he was um, you know, extraordinary that way. And 
the fact that he, he does marry and immediately starts having kids. And a couple years after that, he's elected selectman. Mm. So he's wow. this, yeah, yeah. He's, he's this adolescent selectman. Everyone recognizes the talents There's of this power, guy. There's yeah. power, yeah. He's a powerful. We have no portrait of him. We can only imagine things about him. We do have a wonderful portrait of one of his sons. But, you know, Manchester is so, so obscure. There's no one coming out here to paint people's portraits. Yeah. And so what we, what we know is that this guy is going to end up with 13 children. He married a woman named Mary Tarrin, and Mary was a native of Marblehead. So her parents, when she was young, had made the unusual move from Marblehead to Manchester. Hmm. But it would mean that, that the Lees, that that family, of course, still had connections in Marblehead. So by the time that he's 27 or 8, Samuel Lee had made himself into one of the major contractors of eastern Massachusetts. And it looks like his specialty was in building wharves Mm. at a time that the seaports, like Boston, like Salem, and like Marblehead, are developing their waterfronts. So somebody's got to build wharves. And it looks like that was his contracting specialty. We know that by 1727, it's in the records. And as I say, records are scant for this guy. But one of the great records is that eight of the most prominent young merchants in Marblehead hire Samuel Lee of Manchester to build their warehouse on the brand new wharf that they have jointly built. So I think it's likely that he'd already built the wharf for them. And then these guys are building a very large eight-unit warehouse to store the stuff that um, is coming back from overseas, that they're, the commerce that they're engaged in. So the warehouse would have stored their fish, and then it would have stored the goods that are coming back from Europe mm-hmm. or from the Caribbean as well. And the fact that they chose him as opposed to a, a builder from Salem or Marblehead would indicate he already had good connections in Marblehead and probably had been building other projects that we don't know about. We do know that he worked on Long Wharf in Boston, which mm-hmm. is now State Street in yeah. Boston, yeah. and no doubt he was working in Salem too. So this guy was doing a major hustle at a very early age, and it was all taking place outside of his hometown. Well, what's interesting to me is it shows the lesson that if you look at any industry, any big industries that just whether, and even today, you can make more money or if just as much money, if not more, from the surrounding supportive industries to that central industry. So in this case, it's fishing. And he was a contractor. He was a building contractor. He was not a fisherman. He was not a merchant tier or whatever, you know, <laughs> a pirateer. No, I'm just joking. I'm sorry. Shouldn't have done that. But no, he wasn't in the fishing industry, but he actually was a builder and he actually supported that. And he understood that you can, there's a lot of wealth to be made by focusing and supporting that business. Kind of like Levi's, you know, Levi's yeah. really was because of the gold rush, you know, uh, there's no more gold rush, but we certainly have Levi's. Levi's. So it's that same concept, which I find to be really interesting. What I also struck me about your piece, Bob, was that by 31, 
He had arrived. He had arrived in luxury. Yes. He was, right? He was 31. He was by far the richest man in Manchester, and the second richest was his dad. (laughs) 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 So, yeah. So the Lees had something going on, for sure, that other people did not. And it's a great point that you make, Erica. He, He had found a niche that seems to have been a specialty that nobody else had. So he probably had apprentices and journeymen working for him, and he was training them in the special thing that he did so he could build the business and do multiple projects at the same time. And they were, I think, a key to all of this is that the work he was doing was for the richest people in each Mm -hmm. of these towns. He wasn't just building houses in the countryside. He was becoming friends and the go-to guy for the richest people people in Massachusetts, which couldn't have hurt his business or his notion of who he wanted to become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he was also, wasn't he the treasurer for the town as well? He was the treasurer. Yeah. Yeah. Appropriately so. Justice Until 1738. And, and he also, um, in 1734, he becomes the justice of the peace for the town. So that gives him the title a squire, which okay. certainly he wanted. So he would have been squirely or judgely after 1734. So he, he is the by far the great man of this very small town. Mm-hmm. And pretty clearly he is more connected in terms of business and, and what makes him a well-to-do to other places. And the, the logical place for a guy like Samuel Lee would be Marblehead, because it was still in ferment. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was still cre- recreating itself as this commercial seaport, whereas Salem had been a seaport with a, a hierarchy mm-hmm. of families for a long, long time. And same deal with Boston. And cutting somebody new into the money that they were making wasn't, the only way to get there was marriage in those days. Yeah. And, and that's not what he had done. Yeah. So Marblehead was the logical place to plug into the energy and the money, which, and he, he brought more than his share of energy, and he'd accumulated a lot of money. Now, I know this isn't, there's no documentation, so this is all conjecture, but I wonder, truly, what was the return like for his wife to the community that she, her parents were from? And perhaps she was from as well. She probably spent some time there before she moved to Mar- so, Manchester. So, the, uh, the turning point in the story is she never made it. Oh, oh I didn't know that. I'm yeah. S- so he has this huge family of kids. By 1742, let's say, remember, he's producing children from the age of 18. Yeah. Right. Uh, so by 1742, he's got two older sons who are on their own or you know, set up by dad. They have their own houses. They're about as young as he was at the time he married, a little bit older. And it would appear that at the end of 1742 or early in 1743, his wife died. Hmm. So the death of his wife gave him permission to leave town. And he's thinking about a couple of things. He's, he's still got four younger children. He's got two sons, Jeremiah and David. He has a daughter, Mary, who is disabled. Hmm. And he has a, a 10-year-old Abigail at the time of, of his wife's death. So he has to think about the future of these kids, and he has to think about himself. He's looking for a wife. And he's young. And he's still a vigorous person. 
Yeah. yeah. So I think the move to Marblehead in 1743 was an easy one for him to make for, for both of these reasons. You know, he's pretty, pretty intent on founding a dynasty, I think, and he's looking at Jeremiah and David. He's leaving Samuel and John behind in Manchester. They're plugged into this community, and he wants to reinvent himself, and he wants to find a rich wife. Hmm. And so in, 14, in, 17, does he? <laughs> in 1743, he sure does. He moves to Marblehead, and the timing is extremely good for Sam in that the richest man in Marblehead has just died. And guess what? Uh. The richest man in Marblehead's widow and Samuel find each other, and it's love. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so that happens, mm-hmm. and he buys a house on uh, what is now Washington Square, which is yep. the primo place in Marblehead. He buys a nice house. He adds a third story. He gets himself appointed justice of the peace in Marblehead, so now he's, he's still okay. Judge Lee there. He uh, is grooming his son, Jeremiah, who leaves Manchester at the age of 21 to become his business partner in overseas shipping. So one of the first things they do, or one of the first things Samuel does, is to build a big shipping wharf on the harbor in Marblehead and bring in his son, Jeremiah, as partner. The younger son, David, he sends to Harvard. And as I say, Mary, Mary never marries because she was a disabled person. And so Abigail is being raised in a blended household mm-hmm. with the children of, of the uh, previous marriage. That, and Jeremiah, at the age of 21, not so coincidentally, marries his uh, stepsister, mm. um, one oh. of the richest people in Marblehead. So this, the money seems to be a factor here in these marriages. <laughs> Bob. They're very practical. <laughs> There's no Crow. information indicating as such. <laughs> yeah, she, and, and, I, and I have to very. say, Jeremiah's n- new bride had the wonderful name of Martha Sweat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Patty. So, Patty Sweat. So, yeah. Um, and immediately, Samuel and Jeremiah uh, start knocking it out of the park. And so they've come in not at a low level at all, at, at, a, at a high economic level, but they're not at the very top of this town. And within a few years, they are second in taxable income in Marblehead. So they've figured out how to do the overseas trading business. Mm. This is a sea change for Samuel. He literally Mm -hmm. is getting a chance to reinvent himself as a shipping merchant in trade with Bilbao and the Caribbean. And he's doing it really well. And his son, he's grooming his son. His son is extremely able, shall we say, and perhaps a business genius. So the two of them have moved up very rapidly in doing a brand new business for them. And they are second only to a guy who is known in Marblehead as King Hooper. His name was Robert Hooper, but he was so in command of the town's commerce that he was known as King Hooper. Wow. Yeah. And it's interesting to note that King Hooper's wife was an older sister of Samuel Lee's second wife. So, or, or of, oh, uh, Jer- I'm wow. sorry, of Jeremiah Lee's wife. Yeah, yeah. So now these two families wow. are intimately yeah. connected and no doubt also rivals in business. They're doing the same business and they're both getting extremely wealthy. They're building beautiful houses. 
and uh, it would be it would be wonderful to sit in on uh, Friday night at the Sun Tavern in Marblehead. And Absolutely, see who shows up. I mean, think about it. I mean, honestly, think about it. How frothy and how heady this time had to have been. We just had a conversation about a man who was born in the late 1600s, mm-hmm. and literally within 25 years of his life, from 18 to his 40s, right? Yep. From eight to, or let's say it's 16 to 40, something like that, right? 41. This man grows up in a backwater, poor community with no industry, no giants, no mentors, right. um, with a couple dozen people as peers, let's say, right? And he migrates to the top of that food chain, dominates, traverses to the neighboring giant community of 4,000 people, mm-hmm. and literally transports his roles, his successes, his titles, justice of the peace, etc., to this new community by not just succeeding, but also by setting in that success by integrating into the wealthiest family and the most powerful family there, probably. Strategically, mm-hmm. yes. Very strategic. And, I mean, and this is in 25 years. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, there's a force of personality here that we can't really know. Mm-hmm. But, but we can it, guess it, at it. You know, we, we can guess at We it. can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And, and that transfers to Jeremiah. And I hope maybe we can talk a tiny bit about the next generation. So Samuel only lives 10 years in Marblehead, and then he dies. Okay. And at the time of his death, uh, his youngest daughter, Abigail, has married a man named John Gallison, who's actually a lawyer. And um, David, the Harvard graduate, has died. So really, it's, yeah, it's Jeremiah that's left over from Ooh. all of this, in oh. a way, you see. But Jeremiah had been brought in as partner as his partner from an early age and knew this business extremely well. And so at the time of the death of Samuel Lee, the mantle falls to Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. He's essentially the same guy. He has the same ranking in society and has a very forceful personality. And in those days, this is always a funny note, but in terms of, of the sociology of the times, People did not eat well. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of people were underweight, and uh, food ways just did not favor uh, the typical person. Jeremiah Lee was the most rotund individual (laughs) in Massachusetts. And and, and so the very few um, diary notes that we have, people encountering (laughs) Jeremiah, they never say, oh, what a brilliant conversationalist, or how white his powdered wig was. Whoa, how overweight is this guy? Uh, yeah. That so, is wild. That is wild. Success. Well, we see this, um, fortunately, <laughs> we literally see this in 1766 in that Jeremiah uh, has a full-length portrait of himself made by Copley, the great, oh. the great hmm. portrait painter, yes. and, and of his wife, Martha. Okay. And these two two full-scale paintings of these amazing and notable people in their sort of Baroque outfits are still viewable at the Hartford Athenaeum in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, you're kidding. I kid you not. Yeah, so, so we get to see Jeremiah. Was his wife similarly? Rotund? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Zaftig? 
Well, not similarly, but she'd had eight or nine kids by then. Mm. Yeah, maybe a little Zoftig, but no more than than the typical matron person of the sort of loyalist caste at the upper level of British American society. Well, that's what I'm, t- I'm trying to tap into, whether or not sort of weight was a function of wealth, Completely. of course, which is what you're talking about, it because it was. Yeah. And literally, um, it, I'm wondering if there wasn't, I, and this is, honestly, I, I don't know anything. I'm, I'm speaking for the ignorant part of the, or, you know, like I, I'm representing ignorance. You're I representing am. it very well. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, no, to me, was... Um, was weight or excessive weight something that was um, kind of proud, you know, like, because Absolutely. I can. Yes, because, because I can. enough, more than enough. Is that, is that an element or not really? the beautiful clothing that John Singleton Copley painted. Mm. So there's this tiny little head in yes. a wig and then <laughs> and a this whole lot of mountainous fabric. person in beautiful <laughs> In fabric. beautiful silks. <laughs> yards and yeah. yards and yards. So this is just... It's expensive mo- <laughs> to cover this. That's right. That's right. You try it. <laughs> Uh, this is just the moment where Jeremiah builds his own house in Marblehead, yeah. okay. still standing, and one ah. of the largest houses in Massachusetts. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful house that is p- clearly built for public functions. It is, it's not a snug, cozy place, and no part of the house is, would be, um, shall we say, recognizable as, as a dwelling, okay. even upstairs. Everything is on a very large scale. The entry hall is about 14 feet across. You could drive a horse and wagon carriage right into his house. So it was designed for functions. It was designed designed for for functions. For the the very best functions. It was designed for a very public figure who is entertaining people from Boston and Salem. And occasionally people are coming from And like the White House, it was built to impress. Yes, it was built to to intimidate. And to intimidate. And uh, what we probably want to understand about this is Jeremiah and all of his friends in Marblehead and the same cast in, by and large, in Boston and Salem at this moment, 1765, 1766, they are all fortunate sons of this uh, British American colonial society that is dominated by the British and their authority over these colonies. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking at anyone who's thinking about rebelling. We're looking at people in the street who are thinking about rebelling against the British, but not these guys. They're riding this uh, huge wave. It's working for them. It's working for them. They're totally co-opted by the Brits, and as long as they can make the money in the shipping, they're going to be very happy to play sort of a secondary role to British authority. And then... 1765 is the Stamp Act, and yeah, particularly in Massachusetts, but all through the colonies, this has a a profound effect, Mm. that people realize they're really now being abused by the British. They're being taken for granted, their money is being extracted at every level. Anyone who writes a letter or buys a piece of paper, and there's, there's a huge uh, turn against British authority, and they drop it right away. The Brits realize that they've gone too far with these with the taxation, and the taxation really relates to the British decided to invade and take Canada. That wasn't a New England idea. It was British, uh, shall we say, world politics. 
they were in a war against France. Mm -hmm. They thought it would be a good moment to try and take Canada. Mm -hmm. They thought it would be easy, but they were up against extremely able general, particularly Montcalm was this brilliant general. And so the Canadians, who had a very small army, mainly of, of French who had been transported to Canada, they were able to fight the British to a standstill for three years. And the, trying to maintain an overseas army to take a foreign country. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the end of this, when the British finally won the war in 1760, the Americans had a real close-up look at British authority, and they hated it. Mm. The, the man in the street who had been you know, drafted into the army or had been pushed around by, by British soldiers in, in the seaports realized, we aren't these people. We're someone different from these guys. Mm. And suddenly, in 1760, the British were almost bankrupted by this war. So that's when they start cracking down on American trade to extract duty money and taxation on a trade that has never been heavily taxed. So by 1766, Jeremiah Lee, who has been living off the fat of this British colonial world, mm -hmm. realizes that if this keeps going on the way it's going, he will be bankrupt by 1770. Like, he is losing his ships, he's losing his cargo, he's being taxed at a level that he can no longer create a profit. And this is true of virtually the whole merchant caste. So when you look at Boston or Salem, when you look at John Hancock, he was the same kind of guy. He was just riding that wave of privilege until the moment until. that privilege didn't count. That's right. And so Lee immediately, by the time he builds his house, which he's built pretty much to impress British authority, he is now uh, leading the rebel movement in Marblehead. And... He becomes the colonel of the local militia. The Marblehead Regiment is the only regiment in Massachusetts that is actually drilled so that they know the manual of drill and they can actually do maneuvers. It's really remarkable. And at the end of all of this, Jeremiah Lee is the man who is seen in Essex County as the leader of revolution. So in 1774, when Essex County holds its rebel Congress to decide whether or not they're going to support the rebel Congress in Boston and at what level are they going to make the commitment to starting a war. The chairman of the rebel Congress held in Ipswich for all of Essex County is Jeremiah Lee. Jeremiah Lee by that time has also been a major secret importer of munitions to start mm -hmm. building up, yeah, to start building up the necessary elements for a rebel army, cannon, powder, shot. He has transferred his overseas business into that of an arms dealer. And uh, it's all done in secret. It has to be done in secret. So by 1775, just before the war begins, and it begins in Massachusetts, and it begins because of people like Jeremiah Lee. It's not a coincidence. These other colonies aren't ready for war. Massachusetts is. Jeremiah Lee is off at uh, Lexington at the provincial rebel uh, legislature, which has been set up in opposition to the British. And he's one of the leaders of that legislature. And the night of April 18th, as the British come marching out of Boston towards Lexington and Concord, Jeremiah Lee and two of his colleagues are in a tavern and they are informed 
you know, 15 minutes before the British show up that the British are on their way. And, of course, these guys are convinced that the British have come out of Boston to capture and hang them. <laughs> so, so, so they, in their nightclothes, they go running off into a field. And, you know, running isn't something you do when you weigh 375 pounds. And, 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 and he probably had a cold. But anyway, uh, the, the trauma of that night, and the, the next morning, of course, is the Battle of Lexington and Concord. The war begins. Yeah. Lee became extremely ill as a result of this. And so that was April 18th. By May 10th, he is dead. So everything that he had done, everything that he had put in motion to bring about the revolution that made our country, it was all forgotten because he wasn't there. Had he lived, he would have been a name that everyone knows. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So there's the Lees of Manchester for you. Holy I mean, smokes. imagine like where we started this conversation, the two Samuel Lees and then Jeremiah, and this is all within the span of a pretty tight and very critical period of time before pre-Republic, yeah. <laughs> and how interesting it is, and how Manchester's connected to it in a very interesting way. Absolutely, it began here. What an impressive story. How lucky are we? Thank you, Bob. 100%. My pleasure. All righty. Thanks for coming, Bob. We'll see you soon, right? (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) Come back. (laughs) All righty. Bye. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sidecar. To hear more Cape Ann stories like these, subscribe to the Sidecar podcast from thecricket.com on your favorite podcasting platform.